Welcome to the latest La Trobe Asia seminar. The basic question, as you know, of the seminar is what does North Korea want? The idea that we're trying to prize apart is not this tired old question of why does North Korea have nuclear weapons, but more the more interesting question of where is North Korea going? Because I think we've tended to assume that North Korea is a historical an anachronism that can't survive. A 1950s Stalinist command economy in a globalised world surrounded by what it sees as enemies seems on the face of it to be a kind of implausible, implausible proposition that at some point the whole house of cards is going to come down. And yet, I think the question, that, that assumption, I think, is being proven increasingly uh, wrong, that North Korea's got legs, even though those legs are a little peculiar um, in, in their shape and, and uh, carrying capacity. So the question is, what does North Korea want and how is it going to go about achieving uh, its, its broader ambitions that we want to explore this morning, um, or this afternoon rather. We're very lucky that, that um, here at La Trobe we have one of Australia's leading North Korea experts. He's our own Pyongyang frequent flyer, um, Dr Ben Habib. Ben's been to Pyongyang three times in the past couple of years, Su sufficient that I'm sure it's in his ASIO file. Ben's a lecturer in politics and international relations here at La Trobe. Uh, prior to joining us here, he was um, at the Wodonga, Albury Wodonga campus. Uh, and he comes to us originally from Adelaide. So we have redeemed him in at least two different ways. So um, I'll hand the floor over to Ben, um, speak for a few minutes, about half an hour or so, and we'll go from there. So, well, Firstly, thanks to Nick and Diana uh, for inviting me to give a presentation for La Trobe Asia. It's, uh, I'm delighted to get the opportunity to do so. Uh, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have know who I am and have probably seen me speak on this before, some of you more recently. I've given a few guest lectures. So some of the pictures will be familiar. Uh, a lot of the pictures are, are my own, including all four of these, uh, that were taken on <coughs> one of my three visits uh, to North Korea. So the, the proposition or the question for uh, today's seminar, what does North Korea want? It's a pretty simple question. And like all good questions in international relations, has not so simple answers. And I'm going to... Uh, suggest that North Korea wants four basic things at the moment. <clears throat> First, as it always has, the North Korean leadership wants to ensure its survival and perpetuate uh, its rule into the distant future. Second, it wants to maintain its security from external threats. Third, it wants to develop its economy. And then fourth, and possibly more controversially, it wants to become a fully-fledged nuclear, nuclear weapons power so that it can negotiate peace on those terms with its neighbours and not before that point in time. So let's explore. Now some of you will, all of you will probably be familiar with the movie Team America and many of you will have seen me talking about this very slide and you'll be able to preempt what I'm going to say. But a lot of the coverage about North Korea uh, particularly in the mainstream press, comes from the, the perspective of North Korea as an irrational or crazy international actor, of the Kims as madmen who are prone to craziness, whose behaviour and whose actions are not decipherable by logic. Now I'm going to suggest, and most North Korea watchers will agree, that this is a deeply flawed way of looking at North Korea. Indeed, it's a deeply flawed way of analysing the actions and behaviours of any actor in international relations or any actor in a social realm. I would even go further to suggest that people, some people who adopt the madman 
hypothesis, have an active interest in us not understanding what's going on in North Korea. North Korea is mysterious if you look at it through the madman lens. It's less opaque if you start to deconstruct what's going on and try and uh, have a look at the logic and the motivations for why the North Korean government does the things it does. So that's the, the uh, preamble to what I'm going to say now. Which brings me to my first proposition, that North Korea wants to perpetuate the existing government. So who's the current leader? This is Kim Jong-un. He has come into power uh, in late 2011, early 2012, after the death of his father, Kim Jong-il. When he came to power, there were questions uh, over his ability to actually wield the levers of power in a North Korean state because he's very young. He's only about 30 years old. Uh, and he'd only been groomed for, to take over the leadership for about five years, perhaps, prior to assuming the leadership. In comparison, his father, Kim Jong-il, had a 20-year-long apprenticeship uh, in the high levels of the North Korean state where he was able to cultivate relationships with key people uh, in the bureaucracy, key people in the military, and bring a, a group of young people through the bureaucracy and through the military that would be loyal to him at the point that he assumed power. So when Kim Jong-il did assume power in 1994, although there were some bumps in the road, his assumption of the leadership was relatively painless. In the current, under the current leadership, there's been a little bit more action. Uh, you're all familiar with this figure. This is Chang Song-tek, who is Kim Jong-il's brother-in-law, so Kim Jong-un's uncle by marriage. Now, he was installed as Kim Jong-un's regent, a senior figure in the regime with plenty of experience who could oversee uh, Kim Jr.'s uh, uh, movement into leadership and make sure that uh, he had the institutional backing uh, to make sure his leadership was secure in light of his inexperience. What we saw late last year uh, was the complete removal from influence and power of Chang and a lot of people who were associated with him. So Kim Jong-un has taken a tight grip of control uh, of the uh, institutions and organs of the state. Jang was executed. A number of functionaries loyal to Jang were executed and they've been removed as a potential threat to the leadership uh, of Kim Jong-un. Now I wrote about this in December last year, likening this to a Game of Thrones scenario. Uh, you're all familiar with uh, the TV series Game of Thrones, where you've got competing factions within the government of Westeros who are all potentially at a given time could seize the reins of power. Uh, now in the North Korean state, I mean it's not an exact analogy, but Jang and his faction were a potential alternative pole of power uh, within the apparatus of the state. Now that's been removed and Kim Jong-un's rule uh, is unchallenged. So now that that's the case, now that uh, Kim Jong-un has secured his leadership in terms of uh, where he sits within the, the regime elite, let's have a look at North Korea's security from external threats. Now I think it's pretty easy to mobilise a case that this is fairly self-evident 
So if you look at North Korea, what do you notice? It's surrounded by many larger powers. It has a history of being a site of conflict between other great powers. It has a history of being the plaything of those great powers. So it's only natural uh, that any leader of North Korea, no matter who they are, just through simple rail politic, is going to be quite concerned about their external security in this environment. So this is the context then that you look at the nuclear weapons program and its development and its associated ballistic missile program. So this picture is the, uh, the launch room uh, at the time of the launch of the Unha-3 ballistic missile uh, of a year ago. What North Korea has, or the... What North Korea has is something called Songun politics, where in the late 1990s, Kim Jong-il, to cement his power, made the military the paramount organ of the state. The nuclear and missile programs are the best expression of Songun politics. Uh, this is the leadership's gift to the military, and this is, uh, yes, the best expression of the Songun model. And we see here, these are some pictures, obviously these are not my pictures. Uh, but again, from the, uh, the turbulent period of uh, early last year, uh, when North Korea was uh, issuing a whole lot of hostile and invective rhetoric, uh, it had just performed its third nuclear test, and it was doing a whole lot of weapons testing. This is an amphibious landing testing on the coast. Uh, all of this diplomatic signalling uh, to the outside world. Uh, saying that it's going to proceed with the nuclear weapons program. So the nuclear program, uh, once it's completed, will provide an umbrella that will, one, preserve the leadership uh, from any external threat, and then two, it will do this, provide a shield under which the government then feel safe enough to start tinkering with some changes, piecemeal changes to the North Korean economy. Now, as we know, the North Korean economy has been pretty decrepit since the early 1990s. This is a satellite picture that was taken this year. So there's been earlier versions that I've shown in earlier slideshows. But this is really instructive. You can see South Korea very well developed. We know that. And also, northeast China has increasingly... Uh, seen quite rapid economic development, particularly uh, through here you can see Dalian in the bottom there up to Shenyang. North Korea has missed out on this. The North Korean government wants to plug in to the economic dynamism of the region and raise the standard of living to make North Korea a strong and prosperous country. Now, and again, to do this, this slide just illustrates what I just talked about, using the nuclear program as an umbrella under which they can develop the economy. And they're starting to do this. So the nuclear program is sufficiently advanced now that it acts as a reasonable deterrent against foreign intervention. And we're starting to see evidence of economic growth within North Korea. So this is very new developments in Pyongyang. We've got new apartment blocks here. We've got uh, a water park and amusement rides. The completion of the Ryogyong Tower in Pyongyang, which dominates the skyline of the city and uh, kind of looks like a 
futuristic space shuttle. And I'm sure that's not unintentional. But that's been completed around, around about now. So there is this evidence that this economic development's underway. The government has also started tinkering with reforms to the structure of the economy. So this area here is Rason, which is short for Rajin and Sonbong, two uh, towns that are very close to each other in the very top, in the very northeast of North Korea, near the Chinese and Russian borders. Now this place was set up as the first special economic zone in North Korea. So a similar model to uh, the Chinese uh, special economic zone set up in the Deng Xiaoping era in the 1980s. North Korea established this in the early 90s and tried to get a similar thing going. It didn't work at the time because the government wasn't very committed to it uh, for ideo ideological and practical reasons. But now in the last five years it's really starting to take off. Uh, particularly with uh, investment money from China and also from Russia. Uh, so we're seeing a growth in the production of textiles, uh, shoes, we saw a shoe factory and various other joint venture facilities in this area. Now the plan is to roll out this special economic zone model in other places. So we've seen the unique uh, Kaesong industrial zone in the south, right near the DMZ, that's a joint venture operation with the South Korean government. There's one in Shiniju, which is on the uh, railway line between Beijing and Pyongyang. So if you ever see pictures of uh, North Korean soldiers standing on a bridge uh, across a river, that's at, between Dandong and Shiniju. They're also planning to roll out a lot of smaller versions of this at 11 cities around the country as well, to really try and kickstart the economic development of the country. Another sign of this development is the increase in tourism. So the tourist industry is really starting to take off in North Korea. Uh, these are some of the, the sights and sounds and events that you can take part in if you go on a tour to North Korea. Now the money they make from these ventures is not really coming from people like me or people from the West that go on these tours. Only a few thousand uh, Westerners go to North Korea in any year. Tens of thousands of Chinese go to North Korea on a regular basis. So that's the real money-making vehicle for tourism for the North Korean government, is Chinese tourists. And it appeals to Chinese tourists because it's a place that's close, it's cheap, they can spend money, and uh, yeah, it's a very practical tourist destination. What's also evident is a growth in information technology uh, uh, spurred on by the North Korean government. Now, not everyone has access to this stuff. You still have to be at a reasonably high level uh, within the, the hierarchy of the state. Uh, but on the tours, they do like to take you to these places. So uh, this place on the left here, this is in Chongjin, and it's in the equivalent of what might be a public library. Uh, in the town. And there's a lot of books that you can borrow there uh, and they've got these computer terminals and they let us have a play around with them. Now they have an intranet there, they don't have access to the World Wide Web, uh, but they do have extensive archives of state and official publications and a lot of technical information that might be relevant to people's jobs uh, that they can access on here. And educational stuff as well. Now finally, 
The fourth uh, proposition I want to advance is that North Korea wants to have a mature deployed nuclear deterrent so it can then change the dynamics of its interactions with its neighbouring countries. Once it has a nuclear weapons deterrent in place, that will change the dynamics of its relationship with the United States, and then you might see North Korea willing to come to the negotiating table. But they won't be negotiating for the end of their nuclear weapons deterrent, that's for sure. But they will possibly uh, be in a position to make some concessions. Now, that has a whole lot of implications for American policy, and perhaps we can explore that a bit later. Uh, but this is something that uh, some of the Chinese academics that I've spoken to uh, strongly believe this is what they're doing. So, yeah, I'll leave the presentation there. Let's get into some more informal chat. So I guess, I, <clears throat> I guess the thing is, if, if you've got the question, what does North Korea want? Mm. In some respect, you could answer that question in a very straightforward way, which is North Korea wants what every other state wants. Mm. It wants to be secure, it wants state stability, it wants its core interests to be defended, it wants to be able to defend itself, and it wants to be able to determine its fate on its own terms. And if you boil that down, it's pretty hard to think of a state that doesn't want something not dissimilar to that. I think what sets North Korea apart is the kind of state that it is. Mm. So it is a pretty unusual state. Uh, and its attitude to its citizenry and its attitude to the outside world, which I think is, is the real puzzler in all of this. I, just, I thought I'd just throw a quick question to you and then perhaps we'll open it up and see how other people might want to um, pitch it. But what are China, where, what, where do you think China's attitudes are to North Korea? Because for a long period of time, both before um, the, the recent transition uh, and, in fact, over a long period of time, China's been, in some respects, Pyongyang's best and only friend. Mm. Um, it's been a huge supplier of everything from energy to food to practical defence measures. Uh, and now... With the SEZ, that's all Chinese money. There might mm. be a little bit of Russian money, I think, but it seems to me Chinese, yeah. overwhelmingly Chinese. And if the official stats are to be believed, China is its only non-Korean trade partner. Mm. Uh, so what's China's stake in Pyongyang? What does China want from, from, from North Korea now and into the future, do you think? Uh, well, it wants it to be stable. It wants it not to collapse. And it wants it not to antagonise other regional states that might drag them into... Uh, chaos or conflict that they're not interested in. Uh, so I guess there's not one specific Chinese attitude to North Korea. There's a range of opinions and that has increased in breadth in light of the nuclear test last year and, and the, ever since 2006 when the nuclear program uh, became more of a reality. There's some people that argue that uh, given how much the Chinese have supported North Korea uh, that the nuclear tests which antagonise the Americans and the Japanese and South Koreans are a slap in the face, a loss of face to the Chinese government. Uh, because then that's, that's destabilising the region and uh, for the Chinese Communist Party wants a stable region so it can keep uh, uh, the economic growth vehicle happening there. So North Korean provocations are, are a threat to that. Yeah, I remember at the time that, that just prior to that <coughs> test little over a year ago, the Chinese came out and said, yeah, we, you know, in that kind of coded way that they say, they'll never stand up and mm. say, don't do a nuclear test, but this kind of pretty clear coded signals, we really think this is a bad idea. And then they went and did it, and that's a real kind of, in the, the, the game in Northeast Asian diplomacy, that seemed to me to be pretty severe, um, you know, 
thumbing the nose at at, uh, at the leadership in Beijing. But I guess the other the, the broader question that we I think we're still waiting to see how it plays out is is the attitude of Xi Jinping and his mm-hmm. state council for foreign affairs because Xi we, we, when he came to power so this is the president in China when he came to power you know, a, a, not but a year after Kim Jong Un. Um, there was sort of hope that he'd be a reasonably moderate figure in terms of foreign policy terms. Uh, no one was expecting liberal domestic political reforms, but foreign policy, the thinking was China wants to get back to its sort of charm offensive and making nice with the world and get on with the business of business. Uh, and yet what we've seen, particularly in the East and South China Sea, so the disputes with Japan over the islands in, uh, that the Japanese call the Senkakus and the Chinese call the Yutai and the South China Sea disputes is a kind of hardening up, <coughs> excuse me, hardening up, a kind of muscling up of attitudes in those disputes. Uh, and I guess we haven't yet seen where they stand with North Korea, I guess, as, it, as we get closer to a next nuclear test, which, if you're right, that's to say they want a nuclear weapon capability and they're going to get one, they're yeah. going to have to do another test. So I guess that'll be the, the litmus test for, for Chinese attitudes. All right, I think, why don't we open it up to see if people have got questions, comments, reactions, <coughs> thoughts about... Yeah, North Korea. Yeah, Victor. Victor and George, then here. Plenty, plenty of going. So, one, two, three, four. Uh, First question is about around what uh, North Korea thinks about what the rest of the world thinks about it and the extent to which those attitudes and norms might shape what North Korea does. And the other question is how do you research North Korea? How do you research the preferences of a policy elite that's decidedly opaque even to its own citizenry, let alone the outside world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good questions. Thanks, George. Uh, well, these people appear to be hardcore realists, so they don't care what the rest of the world thinks. And so how, how do we figure that out? Uh, well, there are a series of uh, official pronouncements that come out through Korean Central News Agency. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to read uh, through KCNA the kind of bombastic language that's used in there, uh, particularly recently in reference to the South Korean and American presidents. It's been colourful, to say the least. And, and uh, Michael Kirby was... And Michael on the Kirby as well. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's that. There's, uh, there are treaties that the North Korean government have signed up to, so there are reporting requirements for those things, so you can have a look at that. Uh, but by and large, you have to go on past behaviour and look back in the mirror to see what they've been doing. And they've been remarkably consistent in this very realist approach uh, to their foreign policy. And given that the strategic dynamics are pretty much the same as they have been for 20 years uh, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, you don't see any reason why that, that kind of logic would change. Uh, but yeah, it is a bit of a jigsaw, and you do have to uh, try and piece it together from a variety of different sources. And there is a bit of a, for North Korea watchers, there's a touch of what, what used to be called Kremlinology that goes on, where you know, you see public photos and you try to work out based on who's standing next to whom, who's not in the photo mm. anymore, quite what's going on. And it's slightly laughable, but on the other hand, it's also, they think about things like that. Who's standing next to whom, when, where, under what circumstances, actually is designed to signal to the population as a whole what's going on. But yeah, it's a... Yeah, the, and the Jiang Song Tech episode was interesting there, because Chang <coughs> dropped out of the public eye uh, a few weeks before he was arrested. So there was kind of an inkling that there had been a move made against him because he wasn't appearing in any of the official photos with Kim Jong-un. So that's a potential tip-off. Yeah. No, two, two things. They sort of what's the China strategy to... Mm. to bit of a follow-on what I, from what I was getting at. Uh, and the other is... And this, I think, is a really interesting question about 
the legacy of the war, you know, between 1950 and 53, this massive war, three million plus killed, no change in the geopolitical setup in the Korean Peninsula, and it's unresolved, so they're technically still at war. Mm. It looks like the Chinese strategy is to try and promote the, the Chinese Deng Xiaoping model of uh, economic transition uh, in North Korea. And the, the large amount of Chinese FDI flowing into North Korea kind of supports, supports that hypothesis. Uh, so they want to see North Korea develop. Uh, they want to see, and, and that economic development contributes to the stability of the North Korean government, which then satisfies China's strategic objectives in relation to North Korea. Uh, what was the second part? Uh, the legacy of the war. So, yeah, how much of what we've got in North Korea is a function of that, the fact that the war is unresolved, and the ability of the North to possibly trade on resentment towards the US and the South mm. for, for, for political gain. Yeah, I, I think that's valid. Uh, but if you look at the, the logic that I presented for what North Korea is doing, they would like to resolve the armistice, uh, officially end, uh, sign an instrument to end the Korean War, but on their terms. So you can see the logic of getting the nuclear weapons program so that they can sign a treaty. Uh, but also they've got something to ensure their security that's not just a piece of paper. I don't, I don't doubt it. Yeah, and you compare that with the South Korean strategy using the Kaesong Industrial Zone. Develop North Korea, bring up its economy, uh, try and inject some market and capitalist values into the country and promote uh, political change from within so that if reunification occurs, it's not going to cost the South Koreans as much. Uh, but like if you're North Korea, you look at Russia and Ukraine at the moment and you think, ah, Russia and Ukraine had a, a peace agreement signed when the Ukrainians gave back all the Soviet nuclear weapons in the 90s. What was that worth? So that, if you're in Pyongyang, you could only look at that and say, right, this vindicates what we're trying to do. Yeah, so, so the questions around the emergence of an informal economy and what role it's playing in, in Korea to, North Korea today? I think, forget nuclear weapons, this is the real interesting story in North Korea at the moment. Now the informal economy, so really grassroots entrepreneurialism, this started in the 1990s during the famine. So at this time, the state is on the verge of failure. Government institutions can't really fulfil the roles they had. And one of those roles was to provide the people with a ration. So this is how people got their food, is a handout from the government. That ration distribution system collapsed in the mid-1990s. So you've got people who were starving. You know, 600,000 people died. What do you do in that situation? How do you survive uh, when your food security is so compromised? So one of the responses uh, at this time was the growth of this grassroots marketisation where it could be as simple as people who worked on farms would set up a roadside stall and sell some of the crops that they might have produced and or stolen uh, from the big uh, state-run farms there. It could be informal barter and trading of stuff that uh, household goods or, or food that people had grown in their household or kitchen garden plots. Uh, so that really low-level basic 
trading is how this uh, street entrepreneurialism started. And it's, once that genie was let out of the bottle, despite uh, periodic government efforts to tamp it back down, this has started to mushroom and proliferate. So now what you've got is people who are, uh, and people who have access to foreign currency. So this could be people who are uh, in the border regions who can actually go across and trade. It could be people who have relatives overseas that get remittances. So these were people that were previously not very privileged under the old guard. Now they're the ones getting rich because they've got access to foreign currency which means they can buy things to trade within this emerging entrepreneurial market. Now the interesting thing about this story in terms of uh, political change, and this is something Andre Lankov has argued, is that when you do business with people you have to establish reciprocal bonds of trust with your suppliers, with your clients, etc. So you develop a network with people. Now North Korea is a, a place where the government has instituted a system that actively tries to prevent people from establishing horizontal connections with people. So the argument here is that this growth of grassroots entrepreneurialism uh, could be the thing that uh, brings down this atomization of people and changes the political system either gradually or, or more rapidly as I think Lankov argues. Can I, I'll add two quick things to this. One is <clears throat> when it first appeared the government um, thought this was a lifesaver in terms of feeding people all of a sudden people could get fed mm. and then felt really really threatened um, first by financial power and so the reaction, the government's reaction to the concentration of wealth in a few people who were, ba who were the, the players in this game at various levels was a re-denomination of the currency. Mm. And so that wiped out savings of all of these people who'd been able to be kind of small-scale entrepreneurs. And this was the first rumble of mass discontent in North Korea, about the only one that's ever occurred, where people had savings, first time they've ever had anything like this, and then all taken away. And the government learned a quick lesson out of that. Uh, the second thing, which just adding on from the more recent developments, and they're referred to as frog markets and frog traders because whenever the authorities appear, they, hop, they bundle up their stuff and they hop away, uh, is that the overwhelming majority of people doing this are women. Uh, and they're doing it because the husbands are off at work, um, not getting paid and not doing anything, and the women are, have the opportunity to do, um, whether it's the farming or the trading. And so it's, it's really rapidly changing gender dynamics in households and gender dynamics in society. Now, quite where this is going, we don't know because we've never seen anything like this before, but there's suppositions that you've got some early kind of lead-edge indicators, if you like, of, of not just potential for discontent, but for a pretty serious and quite rapid changes in a society that's been very, very rigid socially over a very long period of time. Um, force, if you want to see more, read about more this sort of stuff, there's a great account of North Korea uh, by, written by the British ambassador... He was a British ambassador in the early John 2000s, Everard, yeah. John Everard. Mm. The book's called Only Beautiful, Please. So if you want to, and you can get it as a Kindle book or an iBook. It's pretty much out of print because they did it in a pretty small run thinking no one would read it. Uh, but it's, it's a really good snapshot. It's partial because you only see one side of North Korea if you're the British ambassador. But it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's filled with photos that he's taken that are a bit like Ben's, but also things like you know, stories of riding through dis um, accidentally find himself in a military base and watching these guards getting freaked out, not because he's there, but because if people find out that he's there, they're going to get in big trouble. So, anyway, it, it's worth having a look at. Okay, um, next was here. Yep, and then there. 
literally physically establishing the special economic zones and how you do it, the sort of power and infrastructure questions that are at, at play. Mm. This is a question about energy. Now, North Korea has, by and large, gets its energy from very old coal-fired power stations, sort of 1950s era, uh, that are in a pretty bad state. The transmission infrastructure, so the power lines, etc., to distribute this energy, some of them are even older, like Japanese colonial era. So they're in a really bad state. And this is one of the reasons why North Korea has an energy problem, why you get to see pictures like this, where North Korea is dark in the middle of the night. Uh, because it's really hard to send power out from uh, places where it's being produced. <coughs> so in these special economic zones, one thing that's happening in Rasson up in the northeast, so Rasson is up here, is that uh, we're seeing a, a slow growth of renewable energy projects. So there's a couple of wind farms up there, and they will just plug into a local grid in Rasson. So that local grid is not part of the national grid, which is in a decrepit state. And you're seeing little projects like that around the place. Now, they're not widespread, uh, but plugging into the, the clean development mechanism, which is a, a component of the Kyoto Protocol and the International Climate Change Regime, they can get uh, international assistance to set up smaller projects like this. And they can make money off carbon credits in the process. Uh, but you're absolutely right to observe that this SEZ strategy is hamstrung uh, by the state of the energy infrastructure in North Korea. And they really, that, that's why energy is such an important aspect of the, of the governance story in North Korea, because they can't accomplish any of these aims unless they have good energy infrastructure. And it, look, any country in the world, they need good energy infrastructure if they want to develop. So, yeah, the question is how porous the border with the PRC is. Well, let's contrast that. And this map is really good. So you can see the DMZ here. It's really well lit up. There's big fences, there's landmines. This is a highly militarised frontier. Let's compare it up here with the Chinese border and you don't see anything like that. Indeed, for most of it, it's very mountainous, it's very sparsely populated. So you've got the Yalu River coming up here and then you've got the Tumen River coming that way and they both converge at Mount Pektu, Pektu San. Uh, so it's not all that heavily guarded. Now, there are barbed wire fences along it. Uh, there are the odd guard posts. There are radar towers that you can see along there periodi periodically. Uh, but it is possible for people to walk across and get in there, uh, you know, as defectors do. So uh, p uh, from time to time, the Chinese will clamp down, uh, depending on a, a local stressor in the relationship. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty easy to get across. And those rivers, especially the Tumen River, they're not very deep. And the Tumen freezes over in winter, so you can walk across. And is there a bunch of legal trade across there? Yeah, there's illegal trade. There's, there's tolerated trade as well. So it is possible for North Korean traders to go into China for a few days, uh, buy some goods, bring it back and sell it in there. So there, there is movement across the border. It's not a, it's not a solid wall fortress border like that one is. There is flow. Okay, Ben's been asked to predict the future and we'll hold him to it. So when you... Oh, you're asking me to uh, what, what's mortgage the future my entire career here. The future. Let me uh, do what all North Korea watchers do and uh, completely sidestep the question by offering some scenarios. So one is, at the extreme end, is 
uh, regime collapse, where what they're trying to do in keeping this system of governance alive, and it's very totalitarian governance, and North Korea's not anywhere near complete totalitarianism now. But that style of government, governance is very labour and energy intensive. It needs a lot of inputs. It's very difficult to maintain for a long time. So uh, through entropy, inevitably, it's going to degrade in one way. Now, when you've got things like food crises, poor economy, you're not trading uh, very much with the outside world, that means that that kind of system is very fragile. Uh, so that's what people who are suggesting that it will collapse very quickly, that's what they're, they're banking on. Then there's the, the muddle through option, which was suggested by Marcus Noland in the 90s, and that's pretty much what North Korea's been doing up until about five years ago. All those stresses in play, but they find ways to plug holes, uh, put band-aids over local problems here and there, and keep the system chugging along, even though it's not hasn't been all that effective. What we're seeing now with this twin nuclear weapons and economic development strategy called the Pyongjin Line uh, in official literature is that they're trying to move beyond muddle through. There seems to be a clear strategy about how to move forward to, to provide security and develop the economy and really try to deal with these stresses so that they're no longer a problem anymore and they can move beyond the muddle-through phase. And then there's the reunification, peaceful reunification option, which is a long-term thing. And I think this is, at least rhetorically, what the Chinese are hoping for, uh, that North Korea will develop uh, the difference between the economies of North and South uh, will decrease as North Korea develops and people get more materially prosperous, uh, then you'll get a middle class that will present political demands. You know that kind of uh, political process that is a result of industrialisation. And that that, over time, will lead to a, a uh, convergence between North and South and they'll agree to reunify peacefully. I'm not sure which one. I, I think that last one is extremely doubtful. Yeah, come on, balance of probabilities. Balance of, balance of probabilities? Uh, I would say... No, I'm not going to go. No. <laughs> coward, <laughs> coward, coward. I mean, I'll just add a little footnote. I've been teaching international politics in East Asia for nearly 15 years. Um, and when I first started teaching this sort of stuff in a regular way, um, so it was 2001, 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, I would have said, bet the house that w this, this, this thing isn't going to last more than a dozen years because it really seemed super fragile then. Uh, now, it's, I think it's gone through the really difficult phase. The, consolidate, the speed of the consolidation of the young boy, whatever you may think of him and the way he behaves, has been quite impressive in a, as a political exercise. And that plus the fact that the Chinese have a vested interest in ensuring the division of the Korean Peninsula and they value that. Now, whether that, if that changes, if the way they think about the Korean Peninsula shifts, then the game shifts. But I think the capacity of North Korea to continue to exist roughly as it is, particularly if it can get cash coming in through the special economic zones, I think should not be underestimated. And I think it's got quite considerable staying power. I would like to add a, a, a little, caveat. A little this. footnote. See, we can draw uh, them out. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've done some thinking about, uh, with my colleague Gase Verbosen, who some of you may have, may have had uh, as a tutor. Uh, he, he studies Egypt and he's looked at the Arab Spring. And so we've had some good discussions about, okay, what's, what's happening in, in Egypt that's not happening in the North Korean case? Why don't we see a North Korean Spring? And I think Victor Cha wrote a, an article about this too somewhere. So in the Egyptian case, you get broad-based popular mobilisation, uh, which leads to the overthrow of the Mubarak regime. What you do have in that case is the existence of a public sphere, a civil society in Egypt, which doesn't exist in North Korea because the political systems are different. In Egypt, you have, or you had, a middle class that had been employed by the Egyptian bureaucracy and that all of a sudden got hollowed out uh, by privatisation and also gutted, influenced by the global financial crisis. So there's a big group of people who are well-educated, who had lost something. This doesn't exist in North Korea. There's no affluent middle class in North Korea. Uh, so in any revolution, it's, it's most likely that the middle class is going to be uh, the most or the, the centre of the revolution, because these are the people whose social mobility is the most slippery and have the most to lose, and will suffer the most uh, relatively if it all goes south. So with that in mind, I don't see uh, a revolt in North Korea happening now. I see that it might happen in 10 or 20 years once the development program has advanced a bit more. And then if there's some kind of economic contraction or some kind of shock event that impacts on this burgeoning middle class, that might be a point where you might see some kind of uh, meaningful unrest that could challenge the system. But, mm. Mm. Right, so, so questions about the gulags and the, the massive prison uh, camp network and what role they might play in international interactions with North Korea. Yeah, ordinarily uh, they're a good <coughs> rhetorical stick for the West to beat North Korea with. Uh, now, I have to be very careful here because the human, human rights situation in North Korea is highly ideologically charged. This is a, there's a lot of uh, contending views on this. Well, not a lot, but there's a couple. And if I was to get in trouble for anything I'm going to say today, it'll be about this. And not from North Korea, from people outside. Uh, so we had the the Kirby report by Justice Michael Kirby from Australia, who was commissioned early last year to do an investigation, a thorough investigation and documentation of human rights abuses in North Korea by the UN Human Rights Commission. And that report was officially released earlier this year. Now, interestingly, that, those findings, at least rhetorically in the media, have become a cudgel to beat the North Korean government with uh, by Western governments. Now, why is that important? I mean, obviously, they're going to use it. But if you think of the United States, they don't have a great deal of actual, tangible leverage over the North Korean government. They don't have real military options to deal with the North Koreans. And uh, the reasons for that being the vulnerability of South Korea uh, to preemptive attack from the North Koreans. So there's a, a level of, uh, of deterrence there. Uh, the US doesn't have, or hardly has any economic links with North Korea that it could use uh, 
as leverage to try and alter North Korean behaviour. So the international sanctions regime and the unilateral American sanctions regime against the North haven't really had the desired effect of altering North Korean behaviour. So what we have, have here in the human rights, the Kirby report and the broader human rights agenda, this is one thing that, that uh, the United States has where it can really attack the North Korean government and something that has traction because the human rights situation in North Korea is very dire. There is an extensive community of defectors and North Korean emigres in the South and in the United States that do want to see the situation change. Now where it gets tricky is that some of these people advocate rapid regime change in North Korea. Now that's potentially a problem uh, because most, most analysts will say if we get a rapid regime change in the North it's going to bring on all kinds of uh, strategic, political, economic problems that regional states will have to deal with uh, and is likely to result in the loss of a lot of lives of North Korea. So it's not necessarily a good outcome, a good human rights outcome for the North Korean people. Uh, but this is, a, uh, this is a matter of intense debate between sort of people advocating for human rights and people advocating a humanitarian agenda who say, we'll work with the North Korean government, we'll give aid, make sure people are fed, uh, that people aren't dying of starvation. Uh, so they'll work with what's there. The other group wants to change the status quo. I don't know if that's really answered your question, but we've, we've covered some ground. <laughs> so the question's yeah. around what, what kind of what use, bargaining, leveraging use, the, the, the missile stuff is, sorry, the nuclear weapon stuff is put vis-a-vis -vis China. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think uh, in whatever diplomatic or economic negotiations you have, uh, the nuclear shadow cast over that uh, changes the playing field. I mean, North Korea, Let's look at it objectively. It's, it's relatively underdeveloped. It's a small country with a small population. Uh, just on the face of that, it doesn't really have any right to be on an equal playing field with any of the other regional states. Uh, so if you add in the nuclear program, the importance of North Korea as a strategic player means that automatically surrounding countries have to afford them uh, more diplomatic weight. Uh, so, yeah, I would agree with that proposition. So, if I can summarise the question, actually, particularly around the US, because I think that, that point of um, intractability in the negotiations is that both sides start from a position which is potentially, or do both sides start from a position which is basically negotiations aren't possible because they each, they're, they're each taking positions that are not divisible. Hmm. Yeah, I think in the American case, and there's a consistent history of this, is that the American foreign policy establishment is very fractured between doves and hawks. And one thing that the doves are vulnerable to is that any time they propose engagement, they get this rhetoric of appeasement uh, thrown at them. Uh, that to engage with the Kim regime would be the equivalent of Neville Chamberlain conceding to Hitler in 1939 in Munich. Uh, which is very powerful and is, it's a a very strong uh, destabiliser of uh, what the Americans can actually offer as a, as a positive inducement to get the North Koreans to do anything. And when they do, and the agreed framework in the, in the 1990s was an example of this. So they'd reached a deal, 
they were to, uh, North Koreans agreed to uh, open their, shut down their nuclear reactor, open it up to International Atomic Energy Agency inspections, and in return the Americans, uh, Japanese and others would finance two light water nuclear reactors to be built in North Korea, uh, which is very difficult to uh, get fissionable material for nuclear weapons from these kind of reactors to be used <coughs> to generate power. Now these programs never got through Congress because of this division and they, they never ended up happening. So that was probably the window where, if, uh, where US DPRK relations could have progressed uh, but that window slammed shut and ever since the Bush era uh, we've seen this steady march towards the North Korea's nuclear gambit. Uh, so, so the question about Jang Song Taik and his purported execution and the general misinformation that, that often comes out from North Korea, misreporting. Uh, I think given the publicity that had been given inside and outside of North Korea to the execution of Jane, it would be highly unlikely that it would be still alive because that would be, represent such a loss of face for the government uh, to make the kind of accusations that they made against Jane and then to keep him alive and have him seen publicly. Uh, I'd, that would be highly unlikely, I think. Yeah, un unlike the, the ex-girlfriend who was reported to have been executed, which, who actually has turned up in China, not very clearly alive. Um, but that, that was a case of misreporting. And there is a, a, a seri you know, basically right-wing newspapers in South, South Korea that make a living doing kind of tabloid exposés of the, sh of the horrors of North Korea. And the problem is the horrors of North Korea are about 80% correct. And determining where the 20% is, is is difficult. But you do have to... When you get a single point of reference out of... of the shocking story out of North Korea, and that single point of reference is a report in one of the right-wing papers in, in the South, you've got to be a little sceptical. But when you get, as Ben said, when you get this big, wide, public reporting of something like this, then you can be pretty confident that something like that went down. And it's in keeping with the pattern of behaviour of the government over a long period of time, i.e., Weeding, identifying threats, weeding them out and killing them. Just surprising it was done so publicly. All right, I think we've exhausted time. Um, so all that remains is to thank Ben for his wonderful presentation and insights into North Korea. And we hope you go back soon to bring back more updated photos. Um, so thanks, Ben.